So uh, welcome everyone to this <laughs> exciting conclusion of two years. Of <laughs> I know it's been a nail biter all this time. <laughs> you can't wait to get to that final <laughs> climax. Well, we're there. <clears throat> and uh, this story ends with a puff of smoke. <laughs> Both the villain and the heroine. So, uh, but it's a tale worth telling. And uh, after tonight, there will be a discussion night. And then the week following, I want to have a Q&A to sort of bring up your questions uh, around whatever might still be uh, percolating and uh, for resolution in that final evening, the last Tuesday of December. So um, we will be meeting more on this subject, but the formal talks will end as of this evening. <coughs> and uh, it's, I think it's a, very, it's a very interesting way that I have worked myself into these foundations as I have learned along with you an orientation and direction. I started out, I didn't really, uh, I, I had assumed the commentary and the way that uh, most people had been speaking about the four, four foundations and they, they made sense within a particular level of understanding but it didn't feel to me to be a complete picture and one that I could fully embrace. But as I started moving into each of the foundations I found them building within me a strong confidence of where I believe the Buddha was taking us and I just felt it needed some clarity and fleshing out so that uh, it could be really understood uh, and I'm not trying to be arrogant that I understand nobody else does but when you bring your own understanding to what is being said and you use implied Dharma wisdom rather than just what the Buddha suttas say uh, I think it offers another I hope I, I hope it enhances what's there in terms of clarity and direction uh, so Basically, these four foundations is really the extraction of our identity from form into formlessness. So that uh, we, if we wonder what the problem is, the problem is that we're totally identified with each expression of form around us. And we don't even realize that's a problem because that, we just take that to be our living experience. And one of those expressions of form that we have invested in is the, our form identity, the sense of I, me, and mine. And so when we have that form identity, what we have in front of us are other factors, other forms that we have given various definitions and meanings to. And so we live in a world of billiard balls. We live in a world of isolated entities that have been uh, sort of consensually uh, uh, talked about and encouraged since we were born. And because we keep clashing in to each other and to other uh, people's expectations, uh, it's a rough go to be a billiard ball. <laughs> and it's, there's a lot of scar tissue 
And we just wonder whether there's anything out there besides just the sense of isolation that we know. We begin to wonder whether there's something more to life than what we have known it to be. Now I think I'm going to switch metaphors here because I think the metaphor that I'd like to encourage uh, tonight is really a metaphor of a movie and a screen because I think that's actually more of a more clarity. Uh, all of us have been to the theater, been to the movie theater, and uh, if uh, the movie uh, is presented on a screen, and the movie has all the forms, the images. Now, the images are what we go to see. That's what brings us to the movie. We don't go to see the screen. And yet the screen is a, an accompaniment of the movie, is it not? In fact, they're actually one in the, one of the, and actually one in the same thing. The images aren't separate from the screen. They're actually on the screen, you might say. And yet we, how many of us went and said, after the movie, said, well, that was an interesting screen. <laughs> we miss that because it doesn't hold our attention. And I think that's a very accurate metaphor for life and how we live it. We have invested in the forms on the screen because that's what interests us. Why does it interest us? It's because we think we can be fulfilled through the movie that is being presented, through the movie that is dancing in front of our eyes, and the one, more importantly, that we keep telling ourselves about our main role within this center stage. And we're reluctant to give that up because for a couple of reasons. One is that we still want things from the movie. We expect it to go in accordance with we think we have ultimate direction on it. Really, you have no more direction on it than one of the characters in the movie as an image. That's about how much control we have. But anyway, we think we do, which is what invites our self forward in this. And we still feel incomplete in whatever ways that we have invested our energy in the movie and feel like it needs to turn out a certain way for us to be able to settle and be content. But it never does, or it does. When it does, it only does partially. And it leaves a kind of a, a wanting more or a bitterness in our, our taste that we would like to go and change things. And all of us have a backlog of issues in which we would like to change certain certain scenes within the movie, on and on. Uh, but we, when, because we're so invested in the imaging in, from, uh, in front of us, we miss that which holds the images. And it, it's more than that which holds the images, it's that which the images are composed. In truth, all, all things are composed of a single essence, said the Buddha. Then we go, whoa, that really changes my understanding of life because I thought there were what, 92 elements or however many there are. And I thought, you know, I was different then and she was different from. I don't see the commonality. Where's the single essence? And if I look in detail and uh, 
survey. I still don't see it, so I don't know what he's talking about. Well, you have to go a different way in this thing. First thing you have to do is to be willing to say, okay, so this movie is running on its own and it's not very fulfilling. And not to self-blame ourselves for it being unfulfilling. It's the nature of the movie that is not going to allow every single isolated entity to get what it wants. How could it? There's only so much. And so we're all going to feel unfulfilled. And the fact that we are chasing something that in its essence is unfulfilling, which means an experience, right? So we chase an experience because all of life is just an experience. You realize that, don't you? And so as we partake, all we really, all that ever happens to us is different forms of experience occur. Different sights, sounds, smells, and tastes, and thoughts. And different textures within that, different states of mind, different pleasures, different pains. But that's all we ever get out of this thing. It's not like we can get anything else out of it. That's very sobering when you realize that what you get out of life is an experience. And when you look at the nature of an experience, it isn't much. It's only that much said Ajahn Chah. You see, because when you really look at the nature of experience, it's ephemeral. <laughs> how, satisfact, how much satisfaction can come from something that's just momentarily present? And so no wonder there is this hunger in us for something everlasting. And we don't know what that means. We keep calling it love, everlasting love, or some sort of something. We keep looking in the field of form, on the movie screen. We look for the images on the screen. That's something everlasting. But the next frame of the movie shows us that that frame was not everlasting. And on and on it goes. Now, how, much, how long does it take us to learn that? Because nine... 90% of Dharma practice is coming to that understanding. Is the realization, you know what? It doesn't work. I mean, we're afraid to say that, some of us, because, God, if I, it's like if you scratch beneath the surface, every one of us would say that in this, in this hall. But none of us want to be the one that says it. The king has no clothes. Ah! <laughs> it has no clothes. I'll say it. <laughs> so, you see, I mean, it's not that it has clothes for some people and others. We like to pretend. Some people like to pretend it has clothes. And then, they, and then everybody goes, wow, I wonder what they're doing. Because I sure don't feel like it has any. And I'll do what they're doing. I'll become a CEO. I pick on CEOs. <laughs> it's like the... Anyway. <laughs> so we say, okay, well then, I, got, I have a form identity. It must not, it can't be, you know, I, I admit that it's not out there. But, you know, I have to, I still want to get something, I still like my form identity. It's not that I just have to give up the forms of the world, I have to give up my form identity. It's not so hard to come to a resolution 
that the forms of the world aren't going to pay off in some kind of satisfactory way. But it's very difficult to come to that conclusion about your form identity, who you are, the images that you have accrued, your own ideas, your own righteousness, all of the ways that you feel just in the world, and self-promoted. That really is what stops us. Now we like to say, okay, well the forms don't work, so I'm ready to pass on now, but we're not. If we look honestly at ourselves, we're not done with ourselves, we're not finished with ourselves, we're not finished with the proclamation. We think if we just keep proclaiming something, at least in other people's eyes will be seen as a success, even if we don't feel that way in ourselves. We just have to say it loudly enough and long, more continuously, somebody, somebody, suddenly somebody will listen. <laughs> as if that would satisfy you. Are you tired yet? I mean really tired, bone tired. Because that's what you have to be, you have to be bone tired. And mostly Dharma practice for most people is clearing away the fog that's in our eyes so that we can become bone tired. So you, you, and that's when the divestment then moves to the screen. That's when the screen is the only thing you're interested in. And when that happens, something, uh, something uh, magnanimous happens. That is when the center re is willing to release his or her centeredness, self-centeredness, so that the circle has no center. If a circle has no center, it has no circumference. It turns into the infinite. How can it, where else can it go? Right? It's either a self-centered world or an infinite one. Those are the choices. And the infinite scares us. I'm just bringing up points here. The infinite scares us so we will stay self-centered and to limit the effect that Dharma practice will have. And so we, we kind of, I mean, it's not that we are insincere. I think everyone in the room is sincere, but we just don't want to go on that direction. You know, it's like, okay, I want the Dharma, but I just don't want to go in the direction in which I don't have something to say. And so we'll find ways to encourage or move our Dharma practice very subtly into self-enhancement, ways to self-enhance ourselves. And I'm, I'm enamored lately by everyone's pull towards doing very strong samadhi concentration states because they seem to proclaim something, you can read them in the suttas, you know, and like right concentration is First John, a second John, a third John. What does that mean? See, this is where you have to be so sobering in your own wisdom that you realize that a bunch of monks who got together and encouraged the suttas forward, encouraged what their states were that they had attained forward so that they could make some 
claim for themselves in terms of their own propriety, in terms of their own importance. At least that's, I can't understand it any other way. Because it's not there. It's not there. And it offers a sense of self-accomplishment. It offers a sense of self-enhancement, which any cultivation does. Any cultivation offers self-enhancement. But that's not the way this thing's going. It's not going towards self-enhancement. If it was going towards self-enhancement, we would all be free. Because we spent our lives doing just that. This is where you have to step back, cold water on your face. What's this all about? What's going on here? First of all, do I want this? Well, not yet. Okay, fair enough. I don't want it yet. Okay, so what is it that's inhibiting? You have to ask questions. You can't just say, I don't want it yet now. I'll, you know, someday maybe. No, you ask questions about why you don't want it yet. I don't want it yet because I don't feel, I don't feel complete in myself. Well, that's a good one because how many of us in the room do? In fact, if I canvassed the seven billion of us in the world, I would probably wouldn't find a hand raised. Why? Because the very nature of how we live is that you never feel complete. You feel something needed, something more needed. That's the driving message of our life. Something's more, something more is needed. Anytime you take yourself out of the hole, which is what you do, what we do to claim our own individuality, we take ourselves away from the whole, you're going to feel incomplete. That's the nature of taking ourselves out of something, right? Some of you don't like this talk. <laughs> I can tell by the grimaces. Well, I'm just... So, okay, so... The foundations of mindfulness were to take it to, us to this point, to this very, very honest point where we go, hmm, I don't know, you know, maybe I'll keep this thing about body. I'll keep it in as a picture, as an image. I'll still, I'll work with my body. I'll shape it up, I'll, invent, I'll go into it, I'll see it as, as sensations arising. But it's still body, and as long as it's body, you're in there. Let's not pretend that we're going somewhere at that level of understanding. No matter how deep you see, insightfully see, and sensitively feel the sensations that are there, there's no escape as long as you are the one that's seeing them. I don't care what subtlety, what power of microscope you use. But it does seem like we're going somewhere because the power of that microscope gets very, very refined. And you start seeing things at such an amazingly quick level. You think, wow, I'm really going somewhere. And then there's going to be some experience. Listen to this. There's going to be some experience that frees me. As if you could be freed from an experience. A transitory sight, sound, smell, taste, or absence thereof would free you. See, it's all ugh, conditioned by years and years of 
commentary. And it's, I'm not suggesting it's not interesting. You get into this stuff and it's, wow, this is fascinating. I see things coming and going, disappearing, arising. Why? Because your, your consciousness is going down to the quantum level of insight. There's no reason. It's just as alive down there as it is on this level. There's no way, reason that the consciousness can't perceive at that level, which it does do. With given a, a, a high degree of samadhi, you can perceive at the quantum level, the smallest level. And things are, they're going, they're passing away, they're rising, they're disappearing, two things, it's like chaos in there. But that's just seeing at a different level. That's not the end of the image. That's just making a more refined image. That's not divesting from images. How can that be divesting from images? It's just creating a new image of fascination for myself. Much nicer than the old one. And people are back there telling us to keep going, encouraging us on because there'll be some experience that will happen that will be called freedom. Never mind that the success rate is zero. <laughs> but it must be in there somewhere. And everybody, but they'll claim their own success, you see. But you'd get to know them you go, whoa, this is not an empty soul here. This is not an empty spirit. Emptiness has a very different flavor. And so when we want to know about ourselves, we have to go and line ourselves up to this form identity. We have to know it as an image. We can't just know it as a more subtle image. We have to know that the image itself is is the screen. We have to know it to its absence. I'd rather stay with a Nietzsche. Change. Why? Because I can adapt to that. Yeah, see, I'm changing too. Or I'll stay with suffering. That characteristic. Oh, isn't it? Yeah, you know. It's because I'm attached. Yeah, you're attached. Okay, just let go. Okay, I'll, I'll talk myself into letting go. See, all of this can be adapted. All of it's adaptable. But anatta isn't adaptable. You're either there or you're not. That's no adaption there. It's the way through. We just have to have the courage to know that This door provides much more than the neg neg negative way it's stated. The loss of an image, the loss of your what's cherished, what you cherish, the loss of your uh, belief systems. That sounds like you're being robbed of things. That doesn't sound like much of a prize. How about life itself? How about entering life? Now we're getting somewhere. How about taking a seat in life itself? 
Nobody would want to do it if all you did was lose. <laughs> but what you gain is so far greater than what you lose. So there are two ways that the Buddha encourages us forward here. <clears throat> Through discernment. This is the important point, is that we have to use the screen in order to know there are images. You can't know you're an image from another image. This is where the analogy ends, okay? So we have to use the formless to dissect form. You can't dissect form from form. You, the sense of me, can't go in because you're full of judgment and ideas. That's what you are. So if you start looking at other forms, all you'll bring is your ideas and your reactions and your whatever to attitudes to that particular object. And you'll temper some and add some more and it'll go away as still something. It'll still be something. It'll be different than what it was when you first looked at it. But it'll still be something because you're using form to eliminate form and that cannot be done. You have to use third foundation. Just this. See, he gives us the tool. Just this. So when I see something, there's no me behind it. There's just awareness, seeing. That takes us into the fourth foundation, which is formlessness, seeing form. Discernment, seeing form. And that's the way through form. That's the way to understand the limitation of form. And that's the way to fi find the limitation of form identity as well. Me. 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 So there's two clear paths, both of which I think are necessary in order to come to the complete understanding of form identity. Okay, I'm just going to give it to you and then we can talk about it in the next couple of weeks if you have questions about it. But uh, the first one, uh, I think, is um, not clearly a Buddhist practice, but it was offered to me by an Indian uh, wise man, Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, who wrote the book I Am That back in 1980. I was a Buddhist monk and went to see him. And he kept saying, find the I am of your experience. And I had no idea what he was talking about, the I am of his, my experience. Wasn't I trying to get rid of the I? What would you want to take me there for? But what, I, what he was pointing to was where it is that we are resting in terms of our identity. Where is it, where is it that you claim I am? And see if that is ultimately a changing phenomena or a complete phenomena that doesn't change. And so when you do that, you, you start perhaps by looking at things that are relative, like I think maybe I'm my thoughts, but then you don't stay there because it's real, real clear that your thoughts aren't being controlled by you and that, those, that there's nothing consistent or permanent about thoughts at all. 
So eventually you come to the state of formlessness, awareness, where the am is in the I am. And the way we have been working with it here is to say, what is it that's seeing? You see, the seeing is the screen. What is seeing? What is seen, S-E-E-N, is the form, is the image. So it's not like, what am I seeing? Because what you're seeing are the forms. What is seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G? Not my eyes are seeing. Your eyes aren't seeing. Awareness is seeing. And if you just, you can spend some time on that and it'll take you right to the I am of experience, the amness of experience. Okay, so we, most of us, sometimes we can get a sense of that. Most of us can't stay there for very long before we're back into the, and playing within the images of what we see. So that's fair enough. So then the second way, Buddhism is very strong, very good at doing this. Every one of you that have ever sat for even a few minutes have already started this excursion, this journey of, and the Hindu tradition is called neti, neti, not this, not that. Not this, not that. See, that's what meditation ultimately has us sit in awareness, seeing the displays of life, the forms of life, the presentations, the images of life, the pictures on the screen. And at first we take up position within what, some of that imaging. Very quickly, we think we're our thoughts, but then we see that thoughts just think themselves. And then we're very slippery on this one, so we, we think more subtle thoughts about the thoughts that are thinking themselves. And we, we keep our position, we keep a position. But as we get quieter, and this is the value of samadhi, is that it does allow us to be able to get quieter so that we can see more and at a stiller. When we're more still, we're not chattering. And when we're chattering less, we're, our position is not thought-based. And so at some point, we begin to hear thought, all thought, but not from a location, not from a place that I am listening to. So the awareness surrounds and thoughts arise within that surround. And also do emotions. Emotions are even harder than thought, perhaps, to extricate ourselves from because they're so tied up to a kind of storyline of our life and a whole history associated with that story that they're so muddled within what we believe ourselves to be that they pull us back into the forms and expressions and images of life and we die there. Uh, we have tantrums, we play out the dramatic scene all within the imaging of our life and forgetting the fact that, wait a minute, what's the third foundation? Just this, just this is arising. Just this, just this anger, just this sorrow, just this grief, just this happiness. 
that the continuity or the sense of continuity comes it comes from sort of having a whole bunch of dots and making them so close together that they appear like a single line. And so if we just keep telling our story from one dot to the next, the story seems to have continuity across the dots. And I can tell my story, you know, you can tell me what I, where I've been yesterday, and since I've been somewhere yesterday, that proves I exist, because I could, I remember where I was yesterday. There is the continuity. So don't tell me I don't exist. Don't tell me Anatta. So way back at the back somewhere, we are like Anatta. If I have to put up with Buddha, Anatta to be a Buddhist, I'll do it, but don't, don't try to convince me of it. Because I know I'm alive. Right? But when we seldom ask the question of what do we know about our life outside of the images that we portray our life to be, outside of the memory that we have of our life, which is happening now, it's not happening then. There was no then. There's just now. And we can see the memories arising now. And therefore, they're an image that's arising within the now, within the formless. And now we're, now we're truly impacted. We have, something has really, because I begin to see that I can't get out of this. I can't. I can't connive my way out of this. I can't argue a, be- a sense of me from now. I can't. It's not arguable. Because it holds everything that I thought I was. As long as I think in longitudinal terms, I can still be a was. And a maybe. But in now, that holds that, I can't. So I want nothing to do with now. I don't want anything to do with that. It shows, it shows how porous I am. It shows how I'm full of holes. Right? So this is where there's no substitute for, for honesty and sincerity. And there's a story that I like to tell and have told in the past is uh, in Carl Jung's um, memoirs, he tells the story of going to Clark's College in Worcester, Massachusetts to get an honorary degree with Sigmund Freud. So the two of them are in the same compartment, I guess. And what do you two psychoanalysts do? But they analyze each other on their way to this. <laughs> so they're back and forth. And uh, I guess Jung hit a nerve of Freud. And at some point, Freud throws up his hand and refuses to go any further into analysis because he says, my authority, I mean, my authority is more important than the truth of where this analysis is taking me. 
So that was the limit of his sincerity. That was where his honesty stopped. But at least we, bri we blamed Freud for, I mean, where, where is our, what about my authority? You see? I like us to, I like us to, let's go there. I, I like us to go right to the edge. Right to the edge of this thing. Oh, man, I don't want to go there. And no one's asking you to. That's what's so beautiful about this thing. No one is whipping you. You know, it's not like, uh, we're not, there's nobody back there like with cattle prods. If we, if we don't want to go, we don't have to go. What you get is form. You get it. By staying in a protected place, we each get the forms of our life. And then at some point, you'll want to go on your own, naturally, authentically, and you'll say, I don't give a damn about my authority. What's the question? I'll, I'll go anywhere that the question will take me. And that'll come because you, you realize that you've gone, you real, this is what you realize. You realize that you're in the kingdom, you're in this kingdom, and you, the king of the kingdom <laughs> says to you, you can have anything in my kingdom, anything you want, anything. And you look around, there's, I mean, there's, you could have anything. And so you say, well, how about a pencil? Got a pencil? You can have a pencil. <laughs> so we give ourselves away to the smallest little object when we can have anything. And you realize that at some point our adherence and investment in form is like wanting a pencil compared to the the immensity of the possibilities here. But it does create an identity crisis. <laughs> and so, you know, it's kind of a prolonged identity. That's what spirituality is, really, a prolonged identity crisis, because <laughs> wherever we think we've settled with a determinate fact about ourselves, if you look at it a different way, suddenly that is uprooted. And so, you know, it, it does create... That's why the stability... There's no, there's no substitute for stability of consciousness. Stability of consciousness is not a thing. It's not an idea or image. It's stability. It's like an unshakable stability. What causes the problems of our identity is when we get afraid, which is a shaky consciousness, a consciousness that is invested in fear when it arises and has a whole story associated with fear. When there is no fear when there is no fear invested in and no story arises in relationship to it, that's stability. It's air, but believe me, it feels stable. And when that stability, that oneness of mind, that absolute stability of consciousness is there, then you don't care whether you're uprooted or not because it means nothing. It's not like it even matters. 
As long as we are form-bound, it matters whether somebody calls us a name. Oh my God, you've attacked my form. <laughs> and, mat and then it, that releases a bunch of, you know, like flies that, oh my God, my form, what am I going to do? I've got to get back and convince him that my form is different than he believes it to be so that I can let everybody know that my form is, you know, so that's, that's craziness, isn't it? But if you have stability of consciousness and somebody says, you're a fool, okay, what difference does it make? <laughs> I mean, first of all, it really doesn't make any difference whether you are a fool or not, but whether he or she thinks you're a fool is even less convincing. And you don't believe it because you don't hold any particular idea of yourself whatsoever. And therefore, nothing sticks. And there's no counterweight or defensive measure necessary to get yourself back-oriented. And that's the true measure of st uh, stable consciousness. All this other stuff, all everything, you're, I don't want to... But all forms, sitting postures, beads, mandalas, chanting, all of it has to do with refining consciousness sufficiently so we can ask the questions that uproot ourselves. When we stay within the form, thinking the form is going to take us somewhere. That is rites and rituals. That's believing that your prayers will be answered. Rites and rituals is a hindrance. Belief in form is a hindrance. Form will save me. What is it? Oh, it's going to save you from what? What's it going to do? It's just going to keep your form afloat. It will do that. Now I want to take you, because I'm aware of the time, I want to take you into something that every one of you can get. And you say, oh, I don't know Anatta. Well, first of all, as I've already said, you're well into it because you've already, every time you see something, you can't be what you see. Now, just get that logically. If you hear yourself thinking, you can't be that thought. You can only think a thought. You can't listen to your, and be it at the same time. So get a, f a sense of how seeing objects prohibits you being that object. And then just take yourself apart that way. And just be willing to look, no matter where, how subtle the thoughts are, be willing to look and see whether you're located in that position either. Well, I've looked at all this. Well, what about the one that's commenting on what you're seeing? How about that person? And over time, it, you can flush the whole thing out. So that's an important way. But here's another important way. Go, this goes directly to the heart of it. The sense of you, what do you think? You think you're outside of the mind, having a mind? Or you think that the sense of you is in the mind as a part of the mind that's being thought? You're being thought. 
Or are you the thinker of the mind, the holder of the mind? I have a mind. Well, if you think you're the latter, if you think you have a mind, knock on wood. Because it's crazy. Where are you if you're outside of the mind? <laughs> no one's been able to find you in the history of science. All they can find as an expression of you are thoughts you're having about yourself. That means you're in the mind, not the owner of the mind. Now you can get, okay, so that's, let my practice show me that. You have to have a resolve. I want to know if there's anything outside the mind's activity. And everything that's outside of the mind's activity, let it be seen. And everything that's in the mind's activity, let it be seen. So all sense of me is a mental activity in the mind. It's something, it's a thought or a feeling or an emotion or a memory or a conjecture or an attitude. I can feel, I can, there's nothing that awareness can't discern. That's the beauty of this fourth foundation. So I'm not a person having a mental experience. I'm a mental experience pretending I'm a person. <laughs> Now, every one of you can get a sense of that. This so, I mean, it's so obvious. And therefore, when I sit down, I'm not going to pretend I'm being the meditator. I'm, I'm the thing that's being meditated on. And then you'll begin to encourage the awareness which is outside the mind, also th throughout the mind, but it's, the, it's like this space in the room. It, it envelops it all. Everything can be seen in awareness, and yet awareness is not a part of the mind. Now that will become very clear to you, that awareness is not contained only as a mental experience. It will become very clear to you. Because there's no mental experience that can't be seen from awareness. Therefore, awareness can't be a mental experience if you can see every mental experience that's arising. And so as we get quieter with those two, formlessness, the awareness, or form, the activity of the mind, you get very, oh, you get, oh, whoa. Let me just shut up then. Stop trying to do anything as a mental experience to encourage Formlessness, because I can't. All I do, all I can do as a mental experience is encourage form, expressions, images, ideas about what's occurring. That's just form. So I have to shut up in order for formlessness to see, be seen. Now we're moving in a wise direction. You haven't squirreled yourself away in some cave. It's as available to you as this moment is. And there's no, you can't refute it. Well, you don't, but part of me is outside. Yeah? Well, let me see that part. Please. And it's within all of our ability and when the mind is whole and not fractured, you see what happens, 
that creates the fractured sense of the world is that the thought of I pulls itself out from the world of objects, the idea, the images that the senses see. Now I am here and the objects are there. And that's two parts of the mind, of the brain, divided against itself, talking, oh, that was a, wow, that's an interesting person there. I think I'll get to know them. That's, a, that's this part of the brain talking to this part of the brain. Now when we're willing to be quiet and include the whole thing, that's formlessness. We're not just willing to produce or infuse or invest in more imaging. And that's the resolution. See how close it is? That's the resolution. Now you can do yoga for the rest of your life. But it better show you that if you want it to be a resolution. Or is it just that I want my body to be more pliable, to be a better form, to be more flexible, not to age, to age more gracefully, so that I don't feel the aging process. See all of that? See all of it? See how we just embellish the form? We just keep embellishing it, pushing it forward, shining it, buffing it. Or is this about something else? And if it is, let us know that. Whether we want to go that direction, that's up to each one of us. But at least let us know that. Okay, y'all. Can we sit for a minute or two? <laughs> so next year, which is only three weeks away, or two weeks away, on to the fundamentals. But if you think you're going to get away from this topic, <laughs> you don't know anything about the fundamentals. Because the fundamentals point to this. So, if there are any questions or comments about anything, I'd be happy to express myself the best I can. Um, the idea of the being part of the mental process in the self yes. being part of that, yes. that uh, seems easily supported by science and kind of something that I agree with, is really easy to relate to. The piece that I have less faith in or that awareness could be something that isn't a mental process. And on top of that, that awareness, um, does it rely on being human then if it's not the ego part of the human? Is it no. Be a different part of it? No. 
good question. The question is, uh, she uh, concedes as a scientist herself that, uh, you know, that the sense of me is part of the brain's activity, but what she hesitates about is uh, understanding that awareness isn't also part of that activity, um, or that, uh, that it's uh, not part of the human nature. Well, so now uh, we're going to have to, you know, expand ourselves and our ideas a little bit. And perhaps at this point we have to uh, just have some faith that those who have seen at a deeper level have an understanding that we might not have. But there's a beautiful, every once in a while you come upon a, a Buddha sutta that just hones in at that point. And the sutta I'd like to talk about here is that uh, somebody came to him and said, um, Buddha, what's the, um, what's the locus of all the senses? And uh, the Buddha said, the locus of all the senses is the brain, the mind, because all the senses come into that organ, right? So, so what's the locus of the brain? What holds it all? And he said, the locus of the brain is sati, awareness. And so then, because there's nothing that happens in the mind that can't be seen, okay? So then he says, oh, so what's the locus of awareness? What holds awareness? And the Buddha said, nirvana, the unconditioned. So I got, I got interested in that. I said, okay, I don't know that. And that's really was, the, was, a, was it a direct transmission, you might say, to a particular path where you begin to see Okay, so if there's anything outside the mind, let me know it. And as you get quieter, and the key here is when we realize we're, not, we're in the mind, we get quiet because you only talk to yourself when you think you're outside having something to talk about. But when you realize you're just a conversation going on, you shut up. Okay? And when you shut up, you see the, the analogy I was using, you see the screen instead of the images. And, you, and it's outside of you. It's not, you feel it looking this way rather than you looking that way. Now, I've done this uh, a number of times with you, but I'd like to do it again just because we're at that point in conversation where we perhaps can sense it. So in this moment, I'd like you to be a person being aware. Be a person. Notice your hands or your feet or, you know, what's going on inside of you or any pain or any, you know, just be a person. Be a person being aware. Now I'm going to switch figure ground on you. So now you're a person having the experience of awareness. A person having the experience of awareness. Now, you have to be quiet. Be awareness have the, having the experience of being a person. So that awareness holds the whole personhood. Uh, 
Now, some of you might have been able to make that transition, that figure ground switch, in which case you, for a moment even, just for a brief second before you freaked you out so that you got yourself back into form, you saw that awareness was like the sea and you were floating in it. <coughs> as opposed to the person that owns the water. Now at that point, that scene, it, when that scene is established, that's called wakefulness, that's called enlightenment. When that figure ground is switched irreversible, irreversibly, so that you can never come back in as a person and convince yourself again, then you, that question no longer arises. Okay, so it'll arise for a long period of time. And it does take some trust, because that's where we get doubtful. We say, well, I don't know, you know, why should I trust him? Just because your heart, your heart wants to trust. Your heart, everyone's heart, and it's not just blind trust. It says, okay, everything this, this Buddha has said up until now has proven to be valid. Maybe this too. Why would all of a sudden he lie to me? He got me to this point, and now he says, now he's going to lie to me? Okay, so let me just say, okay, I'm willing to go. Even though I don't know, I'm willing to push the envelope a little here and say, okay, let me just see. I'm not, I'm not going to have an opinion about it. I'm going to stay open and see if this figure ground switch occurs. And if I stay open, rather than keep asserting my form, then you'll find it does switch. It has to. Whether it's knocking it, you should knock and whatever, the door's opening or something. <laughs> Something's going to happen if you knock. <laughs> knock and the answer, it answers her. I can't remember what it is. So, yes, yes. Yes, yeah, sure. Stop there. <laughs> that was wisdom speaking. I always love it because often the answer is in the question. Okay, so the question had to do, it was a beautiful question. It had to do with when she sits, she's self-improving. She wants to be a better housemaid and a better roommate and a better listener or whatever. And she's saying, well, if I let go of the ego, what's going to compel me forward? What's going to, right? What's going to... And could it be that formlessness holds those qualities? Okay, so first of all, uh, what, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a better this and a better that, okay? So, but if your intentions are only in that direction, then your intentions are only towards perfecting the display that's here, which is okay. It makes you a better roommate. You will become a better roommate. It'll, and that's good, a better citizen. You know, it'll make you a better person. A person. Okay. Which is fine. 
but there's something more. And when you realize you're only working with this much and that there's a whole, you know, that you want to look up and see what more is there. It doesn't mean that you, you don't want to still be a better partner, so you work on that level, but you don't let it confiscate your whole energy for your intention. So you can still be a perfect roommate and a good partner and, you know, have children and, you know, and infuse a lot of attention and energy into those intentions, but it doesn't... All of that doesn't, isn't 100% of the, the reason that you live. And the reason it isn't is that you realize that as you relax more and more into the formless, those qualities are already there. You are better attention. You do pay better attention because there's no thoughts that are getting in the way of that attention. You are kinder because it's only cruelty that is thought-induced, not kindness. Kindness is the absence of cruel thought. And so as you get quieter, you get kinder, your heart comes out. And you get a better listener, you're more patient, you find yourself being more generous because you're less self-centered, which is the definition of generosity. All of the paramis start playing for it, you see? Okay? So again, that takes a lot of faith because how do you know that? So what I'm asking of you now is that if you line up all your intentions and work diligently for your relative intentions, that's fine, but let your part of your heart when you sit move to something that some sense of union or interconnectedness or love, something that is beyond the immediate gratification of self. All right, so just have part of it, and that will start confiscating more and more of your practice because your heart will beat in that direction. And being a good person will be accomplished as you infuse more energy into that main intention. And you'll find yourself actually having the best of both worlds. Everybody wants, nobody wants to be a bad person. Nobody wants to be, everybody wants to be good. But they think if they lose their conscious need to keep repeating, I need to be good, I need to be good, that they'll be bad. In fact, you, we bind ourselves to goodness. You can be assured that the shadow of our poorer intentions follow us all along the way. You see? So if I need to be good, I need to be good, I need to be good, you'll find yourself sneaking off and doing things that are less than that definition. It has to, because the energy, it, just because we focus in energetically on one part of life doesn't eliminate the tendency to do the other. We're just shielding ourselves from that tendency and being blinded by it, which assures that it's going to come up sometime in our life and, and manifest. Jerry.
Where was awareness during the unconscious? Well, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't gone. It was that the, the brain probably wasn't working or something. So there was, I don't know. I don't know where it was. It just wasn't gone. I can promise you that. I have a better one. So I have, <laughs> I was waking up from a colonoscopy. They give you Versed in a colonoscopy. Versed is a drug that you seem to black out uh, and not have any memory, but actually you're awake during the thing. So I was, I, as I was waking up, this doctor's head was over me and I was talking. I had no idea what I was saying. And, but I was talking and he was nodding his head like I was making sense. <laughs> and so I was, and then the consciousness of those two met. And at that moment, I knew I was supposed to say something, but had no idea what the thread of the conversation had been. And thank God he nodded and left the room at that particular moment. So I didn't have to say anything. But it was such a weird feeling because it wasn't just at that moment. I saw it from back here. I saw myself speaking, and then I saw the actual meeting of those two moments where those two actually, and then it was like this. So I don't know. I mean, I don't understand all of the different ways that the awareness and consciousness work together. I don't know how all that works. It's, it's like dreams. Some people never have any sense of themselves dreaming, but have a memory of it. Other people have lucid dreams and have a memory of it, a very clear memory of it. So anyway, awareness was present during the dreams or you wouldn't have any memory at all. But then deep sleep, what about deep sleep? What happens in deep sleep? There's no content, no story maybe, so then there's nothing that awareness can be. I like Guy Armstrong's analogy that awareness is like putting your back to the sun in outer space so that you look out and everything is black. It's only when something comes between you that the light from the sun reflects off and you know there's an object. As soon as it's gone, everything's black. But the sun is still shining even though everything is black as you gaze out from the sun. And that may be somehow analog analogous to uh, deep sleep or uh, you know, being under an anesthetic. I don't have answers to all of these different chemical ways that we the conscious I just know that it never leaves and I don't have to have it all in place to know that it never leaves you can be assured of that because when you see yourself as the experience within awareness no argument here it is known Okay, I'll go. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.